Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. From Offscript Media, this is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to Episode 9 of NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today... We're talking all things rare cancer and highlighting the incredible impact that Nord's Rare Cancer Coalition has made since it was founded by my two guests, John Hopper, president of the board of the Fibrolamillar Cancer Foundation and founding chairman of the GI Cancer Alliance, and Jim Palma, executive director at the Target Cancer Foundation and also vice chairman of the board of directors of Nord. Look, there's no profit in rare anything. Industry's got to recoup their costs by making it up in volume with all the big fancy cancers that get all the attention. Well, this survivor of rare brain cancer, medulloblastoma, begs to differ. Because without entrepreneurial and philanthropic efforts by heroes like Jim and John, there would be no progress in the advocacy, research, and support resources for hundreds of thousands facing rare cancers. So, to regroup, why does Nord have a rare disease coalition? What does it do? Who are their members? How can you join? Is rare disease and rare cancer the same thing? Answers to these questions and more on the program, because it's not always about what we have. It's about what we all have in common. Enjoy the show. Jim, John, guys, thanks so much for coming out today, coming out virtually, of course, today to this episode of NordPod. We're here to talk about Rare Cancer, Rare Cancer Day, the Rare Cancer Coalition. As a member of the Rare Cancer Club, having been diagnosed with a one in 200 a year brain cancer 25 years ago, Nord was the first community I was made aware of even before any of the brain cancer groups. So here I am 25 years later working with you guys, and I think it's really critical our listeners know and the Nord community knows how much it matters that it, rare disease and rare cancer, they combine forces, and you guys are the origin story behind Nord's Rare Cancer Coalition, and that's a really big deal. I want to start with Jim. What got you into this wonderful mess of advocating for rare cancers? Because it's so sexy and amazing. But you are the, the founder of the Target Cancer Foundation. We've had a long-time relationship. Let's get the audience to know who you are. Well, thank you, Matt, and thanks for having us today uh, to talk about this topic. I appreciate it. So Target Cancer Foundation was founded uh, in 2009, so about 11 years ago, by my brother-in-law, Paul Poth. And Paul was... Uh, 38 years old. He's a lawyer in Boston, a uh, marathon runner, very healthy young person, had a new baby and, you know, sort of n nothing to indicate that anything would 
be changing um, when suddenly he was diagnosed with a very rare cancer called cholangiocarcinoma. And certainly at that time, it was nothing that uh, any of us had ever heard of or really had any idea what that meant. But certainly in Boston, in, in a city like Boston where cancer is so present uh, and there's so much fundraising and so many amazing hospitals, it's really kind of it's, it's part of a culture in, in a sort of strange way in Boston. And I think in some ways what that leads to is a bit of an expectation that as terrifying as a cancer diagnosis might be, there's an expectation that in a place like this, certainly there will be something that can be done about it. Um, and what you don't expect at all is that you'll go to a top cancer center in a city like Boston and be told that there's really no treatments available um, for someone who's young and healthy and you know, and, and that was the reality of, of his situation and certainly what played out over the, the just under two years that he was treated uh, where there were really no effective treatments. And what he was told over and over uh, was that there was just no research being done into cholangiocarcinoma at that time. So finding that situation uh, frustrating, to say the least, um, Paul started Target Cancer Foundation himself um, while he was being treated and, and in fact wrote the first check funding a grant from the foundation from an infusion chair at uh, MGH in Boston. And he passed away shortly afterward, uh, but uh, his wife, who's my sister, decided to keep the foundation going at that point, uh, really wanted to make sure that it wouldn't just fizzle out over time. And about a year later, I left my prior job in the financial world and came to work for Target Cancer Foundation full time. And, and really, ever since, we've been focused on funding basic research into rare cancers and, and really trying to seed programs and seed research initiatives where they didn't exist before, certainly in places like cholangiocarcinoma, as well as places like esophageal cancer um, and, and other rare cancers. As time has gone on, we've, we've really expanded our work significantly. So while we still fund basic research grants, we have become far more active in the advocacy community and are doing a lot more work directly with patients. And, and just in the past month, we've uh, sort of announced the next step forward for our foundation, which is a new clinical study called TRAC, uh, which stands for Target Rare Cancer Knowledge, uh, which is a 400 patient study looking at precision medicine and rare cancers uh, and, and ensuring that many of the barriers to clinical trials for those facing rare cancers, things like comprehensive genomic profiling and expert treatment recommendations, uh, that we, we take those barriers away and, and, and we help patients as much as possible while informing uh, rare cancer research. Yeah, because there's there's no money in the in the in, in the, the the small markets, right? They got to recoup their costs off the big groups that get the big cancers that the most people get. And when you're the outlier, where do you get that funding from? It's because of, you know, I would say like philanthropic startups they have to someone has to get in there and start the research because no one else is going to do it and in the interest of syllables because we're here at cholangia carcinomas i think eight syllables but fibrolamellar hepatocellular carcinoma you win john you totally win help us understand rare liver cancer and how you got started there yeah so matt it's a good question you ask in terms of, I think fibrolamellar actually has a branding issue like many of the rare cancers do. So many people actually call it fibromyalgia, which is far from that. But it is a rare adolescent young adult liver cancer. As aggressive, in my opinion, as pancreatic cancer, and it's affecting 12 to 34-year-olds who are Typically, perfectly healthy. They don't have a compromised liver, which many people who have the larger hepatocellular carcinoma do. Young, vibrant young people who all of a sudden one day have a stomach cramp or some you know, upper thigh cramps and things like that, and they kind of work through it because they're kids and 
lo and behold, by the time they actually get to a doctor or a doctor who understands that it might be more than just the flu or something to that effect, they find out that they have a fairly large tumor. And in most cases, it's diagnosed in stage four. Fibrinol has a very low uh, five-year survival rate. And similar to what Jim was saying, you know, there are no curative therapies. There are no standard of care right now. And like many rare cancers, besides the fact that it's tough to pronounce, it's tough to find interested parties in both researching it and, quite frankly, understanding even how to diagnose it. So it's got the typical challenges that rare cancer patients face. This one here, we find it particularly heart-wrenching because it's such a young community um, that, again, has little hope until foundations like the Fibromolar Cancer Foundation come around and say, we're going to raise money and we're going to be focusing on research for the most part and also focus on education so people understand what fibromolar is, both from a patient and a um, scientific community, and also try to rally the patients around it because we really don't know how many people have fibromolar. You know, it's so small. It could be somewhere between 200 and 600 or maybe more, but because it's so tough to find somebody else who has that, like in many rare cancers, it's difficult to actually know what the true number is. But we are trying very hard to get major pharmaceutical companies involved who are looking at the larger hepatocellular carcinoma to look at fibromolar since it is in the liver cancer area. Uh, we funded now almost $10 million worth of research across 18 institutions, all the big ones that you can imagine. We're working with the Broad Institute. And recently, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative recognized the Fibromolar Cancer Foundation for many of the reasons that you're talking to us about, Matt, which is rare cancers are typically ignored. We need big groups like the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to recognize that and to help us move forward with staffing, with dollars, and with recognition from big groups like the NCI and the Department of Defense and others that can really be effective for cancers like ours. So that resonates again with me, really hits home because as a young adult diagnosed with a rare cancer, I had something called medulloblastoma, which in the world of pediatric brain cancer is like the least likely, least unknown, at least it was back then. And it was only because of efforts like these, you know, really empowered philanthropists that want to focus on, there's no money in this, there's no money in this, we have to do this because if we don't do it, no one will. What have been the fruits? Let's go back to Jim. The fruits of your labor. You know, what in the, uh, by the way, cholangiocarcinoma is also uh, something important because I have an uncle that died from it. Totally rare, out of the blue, just insane. Let's talk about how funding rare cancers actually makes a huge difference, even though it's maybe a very small fraction of di diagnosis writ large for cancer. Jim, I'll let you go first. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's, you touched on this, but there's a real gap that philanthropy and advocacy research funding fills in rare cancers. So there's, uh, we always talk a lot about a catch-22 in rare cancers where big funding agencies like the NCI, you know, the, the multi-year, multi-million dollar grants require established programs. Um, they don't want to fund new programs and get them off the ground. So really, philanthropy has to step in to help seed programs and get them to the point where they can then apply for the, the larger grants that, that really are the most impactful. And that's a place where I think as you look across the rare cancer advocacy landscape, 
There are so many um, examples of foundations who have been able to successfully do this and really move the field forward in meaningful and uh, substantial ways in the the various rare cancers that they focus in. For us, it's been uh, in our basic research funding, we were really limited in funds. We, we didn't have millions of dollars to give. So we had to think a lot about how we could be as impactful as possible with relatively small grants. And the focus that we've had is in developing specific research tools that exist in great numbers for common cancers, but often in rare cancers don't exist at all. So things like cell lines, patient-derived xenografts, mouse models, when those tools are put in place and when a smaller advocacy foundation has the ability to fund their development and creation and, and foster that process, research programs tend to grow around them and research communities tend to grow. When the, when the tools are there, people can, can test their experiments, they can do the work that needs to be done and then eventually apply for the larger grants. So that's, that's been a big part of our strategy historically is to, to try to develop the tools that are needed that don't exist at all in many cases of rare cancers, but again, exist in great numbers in, in common cancers, and then get those tools out into the public domain so any researcher can access them. Yeah, and John, you mentioned supporting nine figures into your initiatives over the years. Where has that translated to as far as medications or uh, genomic screenings? Like, how does it all play out? Yeah, great question, Matt. You know, to Jim's point too, you know, we focus in on both basic research and translational research, right? Again, the rare cancers are so under-researched that the ecosystem elements, to get really good researchers interested in this, you need to have the mouse models, you need to have cell lines, you need to have some of the basic elements that most rare cancers don't have. Part of it is because there hasn't been enough funding to actually create those kind of models and cell lines. Others, it's because it's just really difficult. It's been understudied along the way. So we focus the money both on that basic elements, but then we try to get, obviously, translational research done. I mean, I've got these young kids who are, you know, have a time bomb on them in the sense that, you know, if they look at the five-year survival rate, they know that they've got to really hope that there's going to be some form of clinical trials or curative therapies. And so we've been looking at the translational areas, everything from drug discovery, which we're doing with groups like the Broad Institute and the University of California, San Francisco, to clinical trials where there were no clinical trials a couple of years ago, to try to give at least some hope along the way. So that nine figures of funding is going to both those areas. But at the same time, we're also trying to leverage those dollars to bring in a group like Bristol-Myers Squibb or Genentech and others who may have a drug that's being used again for a larger cancer and try to convince them that this cancer, because of the age, because of, we know the driving mutation, which is a big hurrah in research, we know what drives this cancer, so we have a focus, uh, and try to get them more involved, those organizations more involved in the translational part, so we actually have something that can be curative for those patients who have it now. Jim, I want some clarity. This is just literally from my own edification. Being in the cancer space for so long and then going to rare disease space, how do you square the circle or is there a Wikipedia understanding of the difference between, or is there even a difference between rare cancer, rare disease, rare disorder? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And I, you know, it's one I've, I've thought about a lot because I, when I first came into this world, I had no experience whatsoever in, in any any sort of advocacy or, or anything rare or otherwise in this space. And, and where I really learned a lot about it was through the rare disease world. 
so, and really a lot of that was through participating in events at Nord, um, conferences, summits, that kind of thing. So there is a lot in the rare disease world that's very consistent with rare cancers. And there's so much that you can adapt if you learn from, from one side of that, you can take it over uh, and apply it in your own work. That being said, rare cancers really have very unique challenges. And, and while there is always so much to learn from the rare disease world and adapted to the work I was doing it as I helped to develop target cancer, there would always be things that I was hearing about in the rare disease world that I just couldn't quite, couldn't quite fit and didn't, didn't make as much sense in the work that I was doing and the experiences that I was hearing about from patients. So that's really been the genesis, I think, in, in John and I sort of talking and working together to develop the Rare Cancer Coalition is to, to within NORD and within a, a format and a, and a forum that does such incredible work for rare diseases to sort of leverage all of that, but really make it specifically applicable to rare cancers and to the very unique challenges faced by rare cancer researchers and patients, which we're facing all the time. John, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree with Jim in terms of you know, identifying the fact that rare cancers you know, truly have their own unique subset within rare disorders. Certainly, there's a commonality amongst all the rare diseases in terms of the need for more research, more attention, more definition, everything from natural history studies to registries, etc. But within rare cancers themselves, we can look at that and say... The, the research community is different than many of the rare disorders that are out there. The need for the patient community is also a little bit different. Well, we have people who truly realize they've got this cancer and their lifespan may be short if, in fact, they can't find a cure. It's, they're not, these are not chronic diseases. So when we looked at that and we saw that there was within NORD, over 25 to 30 rare cancer organizations, the, the key thing came is to us, which was, hey, let's get together informally and at least start talking about what our common needs are. And again, while there's certainly many that are, you know, related very closely to the overall organization of NORD and rare disorders, we did see that the unique, both the medical, the research, the psychological, all different aspects of rare cancer, we found more similarities amongst ourselves, which then started to get a great dialogue about sharing information and sharing best practices and sharing, you know, as much as we could to move forward the rare cancer area. So to Jim's point, uh, a lot of similarities, but at the same point, we did see a unique subset that we thought was being unaddressed. Back with our guests after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
So I want to pick up on this just general framework of rare cancer. And having worked in oncology for 18 years, there really aren't a lot. I couldn't even think for on the top of my list, you know, uh, naming on five fingers rare cancer groups that have banded together to do X, Y, and Z. And then learning more about Nord as I reentered your ecosystem, knowing that you had a rare cancer coalition. A, how do they not know that? B, why hasn't that happened before? But you guys are the co-founders of this. So I was hoping, you know, John, can you talk about your origin story, getting familiar with Nord as a construct in general, and then meeting up with Jim and what it meant to start the Rare Cancer Coalition? Yeah, Matt, it's interesting. You know, I came out of industry where I ran healthcare agencies and across lots of different diseases and lots of nonprofits and a lot of pharmaceutical companies and kind of a smorgasbord of healthcare. And when I was asked to run the Fibromyalgia Cancer Foundation, of course, first thing it was, okay, it's a rare cancer, it's very small, and who am I networking with, and who even knows about this? And I found that I wasn't alone, um, that as you met other folks in the rare cancer area, whether it's through conferences or just through networking, that we all have some of the same experiences, which was we feel alone, we feel there's no collaborative group out there, uh, we know that we're small voices, but we have to be louder. And um, eventually, you know, through actually, actually, was a friend of a friend. I actually met Jim Palma, and Jim's become kind of my mentor, even though I'm a few years older than you, Jim. It's uh, but really, in terms of where do you go? And so you start off with saying, well, there's this group called the National Organization of Rare Disorders, but you can go to their conference, and they happen to be down the street in Danbury, Connecticut, and at least get that start to understand what some of the resources are for rare diseases and then the subcategory of cancers. You know, eventually groups that have larger GI cancers, which is my focus area in gyms, there was a group there that realized there wasn't even a, an association of GI cancers. And Jim and I and others came in and said, well, if you're going to organize that, which is called the GI Cancer Alliance, bring rare cancers in. And so we helped to become the leadership within that organization. But all that said is, You've got the GI Cancer Alliance with Nord. When we went to the conferences, we realized, well, you know, let's just do a, a lunch. Let's just ask anybody who's at the Nord conference, who's, at a rare, who's a rare cancer foundation head, let's grab an informal lunch. And Jim and I actually did that with one table, but I also brought in somebody from the FDA and the NCI who were interested in what is What's, what's the issues you all have? That led to the next year being five tables, then it was 10 tables, and eventually we realized that there's something here that Nord in particular can address because we were all sharing our journeys. We're all sharing our information. We're all sharing researchers that might be associated with my group, just like it was cholangiocarcinoma. So the idea there was it went organically for saying, is there anybody who understands rare cancers to find some key organizations that exist to realize that we need to create more organizations to have a louder voice? And then from a lunch table at Nord came the birth of the Rare Cancer Coalition, which Jim helped to co-found. I love the common thread concerns. Again, like we, we used to have this expression, you're young and okay, you know, cancer used to be like a contest. Like I'm worse off than you. And we kind of like level set and just drop that. It's not about that. It's about our, our common heritage, our common threads. What matters most is how we all do this together, regardless of how much suckage there is and what you're dealing with every single day. I love the idea. I do want to ask the question because the word itself can often trigger hives 
to the nonprofit executives? And what is a coalition? What does it really mean? And what does it mean when it really works? I'll, I'll put to Jim. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 something I think we've been we've been figuring out as we go along and really at its base. Um, I, I think what John what John talked about, uh, just having a forum by which people can can meet and talk and discuss common issues is is really powerful. If nothing else, there, there's use in that. But what we really felt like we could do better with this group was really fully leverage the sort of greater might and power of Nord in order to help us deliver benefits to coalition members. So, so there's this part of the coalition that I think is just having people get to know each other, get to learn about other foundations in this space, share information about what they're doing. But then what we're also able to do is be a part of greater initiatives that if on our own, we, we just wouldn't have access to. Um, so by being a part of Nord and by having the Rare Cancer Coalition housed there, it really helps us to better be represented in policy issues that Nord might be taking on or to have better access to things like the registry program or, or any of those different things. But take all of those you know, uh, benefits or, or whatever you may call them um, that Nord provides and really distill them and make them very specific to the needs of the rare cancer community. So I think... I think we do have a greater voice when we work together. We have opportunities to get to know each other, to network at, you know, when we had in-person events and maybe when we have them again someday, to even just have forums for us to just be present in the room together to talk and meet with other people. But then also to really be a part of the greater programs of Nord, but make sure that they're they're very tailored to the rare cancer community. Um, and then really also just have the support of Nord to to help us um, do all of this, because, of course, John and I have the work that we're doing, our, our primary organizations that we we focus on, but receive a lot of support from Nord to make sure that the coalition moves forward. So raising awareness around the fact that there is a rare cancer coalition under Nord what is your message to recruit or raise awareness to nonprofits in smaller rare cancer communities that have an incentive to want to become part of a, a greater cause? So I think what, what we're really doing is trying to just tell people that, that this group exists, that there is there, there really is um, a lot of momentum right now behind rare cancers. And we feel like this coalition is playing a, a very significant role in that. So we, you know, really the message is just to to join the club, uh, basically, right. and, and be a part of something, um, you know, where you can really learn a lot, um, but also potentially receive benefits. And because it's a Nord member organization benefit, you know, members are required to be a part of Nord. But I think there's a obviously a benefit to being a part of that larger organization in a general sense, but then having, again, the more specific benefits that, that kind of come down to the coalition I think has been really exciting for people. And we've seen the coalition grow significantly. I think we're up to 26 organizations at this point, and we really want that to keep keep getting uh, bigger and bigger. To add to what Jim is saying, one of the other big benefits to draw people in is the fact that since the Rare Cancer Coalition has been in existence, you know, the Department of Defense now has a pool of money just for rare cancers. It did not have that five years ago. In fact, it just came up three years ago. And certainly the influence of Nord and those of us who have had some, you know, relationship with the Department of Defense has really been a key benefit because who would think the Department of Defense is actually funding cancer research? The National Cancer Institute has also built a strong relationship with the Rare Cancer Coalition with their MyPart program, which is My Pediatric and Adult Rare Tumor, uh, which several of our members are now part of the what they call a clinical trial within the NCI 
Um, so you get those also benefits that we kind of reach out when we tell people to come to this kind of informal organization of the Rare Cancer Coalition, but here's kind of the the network that we're creating. Here's some of the relationships that we can help you build that you may not be able to do it on your own because we know together we are stronger than just our own voices. But those are just some examples to add to what Jim was saying that I think is a has been a really big benefit for people to come in who couldn't build those relationships on their own. Yeah, I mean, speaking of common thread, I think it's. I, I'd like to spend some time talking about how there's been this. I won't say a pivot. It just seems like a natural evolution to go from the one-offs of rare cancers to the commonalities genetically, and this whole genomics movement, which shouldn't be surprising to people because it's been around a long time. But where have you seen awareness and connection and and testing in the rare disease space from a genomics perspective? I'd be happy to to speak to that. You know, I, I think um, this has obviously become a, a just a, a huge focus in this space, and it's uniquely relevant, I, I think, to people facing rare cancers. And and really, there's no better example of this than cholangiocarcinoma, where you know there's a standard of care treatment that hasn't changed in a very long time, and it's not a treatment that offers a lot of benefit, frankly. And Simultaneously, there are multiple targeted clinical trials and even some um, drugs that have been approved now in alterations that have only been detected in the past few years. Um, but of course, unless somebody gets a test and unless they know what alterations are driving their cancer, they wouldn't even know if they're um, eligible for these trials, which are really helping people significantly. So, you know, it's just become clear the urgency and the need for, for testing in the rare cancer community where the sort of standard of care options are really limited, this has to be done. And I think that what is so exciting about it is it does allow us to start to look past histology and to look at the molecular makeup of cancer. And, and I think we've all known about this for a long time and people have talked about, you know, someday we won't define cancer by sight and, and that kind of thing. But I actually think it's happening in real time now and we're seeing it. And this has been, uh, you know, a, a huge part of uh, a huge effort for a lot of organizations in the rare cancer space. I mentioned cholangiocarcinoma. The cholangiocarcinoma foundation has done um, really nice awareness around this, um, around the importance of, of testing. Um, I know a lot of other groups are looking, and and this is where we've Target Cancer Foundation. My foundation has really focused the majority of our efforts now in creating a study that looks past histology, but looks at rare cancers as a broad group to try to identify what, what's driving people's cancer and make treatment recommendations based on that rather than solely on the site of origin. And I, I just think that's where this is all going to continue to go. John, you concur with that? I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, we're finding that with you know so many of the rare cancers. I'll use Fibromyalgia Cancer Foundation. Fibromyalgia is an example also. Even though we know what the driving mutation is, we still need to have each one of the patients go through some form of genomic testing to see other relevant areas, you know, the pathway that might be affected by this. Uh, the personalized medicine key is, is key, especially in our case. You know, there is no standard of care. There is no protocol right now. So we're still a few years behind the cholangiocarcinoma. So the more that we can basically advocate to the patients to really have that dialogue with their physician about getting genomic testing once they've been diagnosed because of the fact that this personalized medicine, precision medicine, is really the key thing. It's no longer, as Jim was saying, it's no longer the organ of organ. It's really what is the mutation and what's the DNA and RNA component of it. So 
Yes, totally concur with Jim. We're actively using it, and certainly I see the other rare cancer groups that we have exposure to understand that this is more and more important. Jim, I'll give you the final word. How can our listeners learn more about the Nord Rare Cancer Coalition, whether they're a member of a nonprofit, leading a nonprofit, or just a patient or a caregiver that needs to know they're not alone? Uh, well, people can learn more at the Nord website. And I don't have the URL handy, but um, I know if you search on the Nord website for Rare Cancer Coalition or even just Google Nord Rare Cancer Coalition, you'll find the page. But really, people can also feel free to reach out to me directly. And, and John, I hope you don't mind. I'll offer you up as well. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we're always happy to talk. And we do we do have a lot of conversations with people about this where they can just reach out to us to learn more and, and learn about if they want to be a part of this. And of course, the Nord staff is always happy to talk to people as well. Jim Palma, Executive Director of the Target Cancer Foundation. John Hopper, President of the Board of the Faber-Millar Cancer Foundation, both co-chairs of the Nord Rare Cancer Coalition. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on NordPod today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Matt. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Karen Lee is our production manager. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org. Nordpod.